bold and raw perspectives of local politics, important information which impacts our community, nation, and world, exposing truth, transparency, and getting to the heart of relevant issues that you just won't see in the clickbait media, and always keeping it real. It's the Michelle Tanner Podcast. But I won't back down. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Michelle Tanner podcast. I am super excited for today's episode. We have a super amazing guest joining us via Skype. First, I want to give a shout out to one of our awesome sponsors, the St. George Sunrise Market. So you guys really got to check these guys out. They are actually having their launching market. It's this Saturday. So March 2nd from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. This is here in St. George at the Seg Miller Farm Park. So it's out in that Little Valley area where everybody is flocking to. Everybody lives out, I swear, in Little Valley these days. I live out in that area. So I'm actually really, really excited for this market. So they've got a wide variety of different artisans, farmers, Uh, jewelry making. They're going to have a treasure hunt for the kids. So that's, I think the treasure hunt is at 1230. Um, But stop by anytime between 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. So awesome. Super excited to have that new market option here in St. George. So on to today's guest. Gosh, I got to tell you guys, the state of Utah is so lucky and blessed to have Marlo Oaks as our state treasurer. I'm going to read you guys a little bit of a bio on Marlo. Most of you guys already know him, um, but Marlo Oaks is Utah's 26th state treasurer. He was appointed in July 2021 and then elected in November 2022 to finish his predecessor's term. Marlo spent most of his career in money management and is one of the only two state treasurers with institutional investment management experience. Because of Marlo's knowledge of the capital markets, he is leading the national charge to protect economic freedoms. He has appeared on national programs, including Glenn Beck, The High Wire, Tucker Carlson, and written articles for The Wall Street Journal and The Daily Wire, among other outlets. Marlo graduated with a degree in economics from Brigham Young University, woohoo, and an MBA from the University of California, Los Angeles. He also holds the CFA and CAIA investment designations. He and his wife, Elaine, reside in Bountiful, Utah, and are the parents of six children. So, wow, Marlo, thank you so much. Welcome to the Michelle Tanner podcast. Thank you, Michelle. Great to be here. Yeah, I am so excited. I feel like there's just like you're the expert in so many things I feel like we could talk about. But I think one of the big things that's on a lot of people's minds, and actually, I think we really have you to thank for bringing this to light, which is ESG. I feel like more and more people are becoming aware of what it is. But actually, even Deshaun here, who I was just talking to, was like, ESG, what's that? So Sorry, Sean, I had to call you out. So, Marlo, for those who maybe don't know even what ESG is, can you break that down for us? Sure. Um, so ESG, uh, it stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. And it's really happening in the investment markets. Um, so in, in investment portfolios, um, it, it's an effort to push companies to adopt certain uh, political agendas, frankly, 
um, and, and and push them in their companies and in the activities of their companies. So, um, and really, I think of ESG in two parts. There's sort of the benign part where people say, well, this is just about identifying risk. So what is the risk of climate change, for example, on a, on a particular business? Um, and, and also, you know, this is just a choice for investors. It, the second part is is the one that is much more troubling, and that's where it really requires collective ag- action. Um, the activists and, and other investors are engaging companies to change them. Uh, they're using really other people's money um, without their consent uh, to to change these companies, and that's and that's really where it becomes problematic um, because these there's a lot of money that is trying to push companies to adopt policies that they otherwise would not adopt. So essentially, it sounds like it's a a mechanism of really bullying people into pushing a leftist agenda. I mean, is there anything that they're actually pushing or promoting that you would say is not more of the leftist ideology? Well, so, you know, there are certain risks um, and with uh, companies. Think of an insurance company that has underwritten climate risk, for example, uh, for a very long time. So I worked at a property and casualty insurance company. uh, And, and, you know, the biggest risk um, that we were concerned about was a hurricane going through Houston. (laughs) Right. And, and, And these things are tied to you know, climate now, uh, but insurance companies have been underwriting this kind of risk for centuries. And so just because it is identified as an ESG risk doesn't mean um, it's necessarily a problem. Uh, the problem is, is that uh, things that are not financially material to a company are are being pushed, or they're only looking at one part of a particular risk. So what is the risk, for example, of of fossil fuel uh, going out of style and, and moving to uh, green energy, you know what is the risk to an oil company? Uh, should should the economy go in that direction? Um, the problem is is that that those who are are talking about it that way are not saying, well, what is the risk to the uh, economy of pushing uh, the economy away from fossil fuels before it's ready to do so? Yeah. And do you see ESG, does it intersect with DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion? Do you see that that agenda being intersected here? Yeah, I really think of DEI as um, falls under the social part of, of ESG um, and, you know, includes things like critical race theory or um, transgender activism. Those are those are kind of some of the social elements you know, DEI certainly fits uh, in that and, and, you know, really pushing companies to have uh, DEI officers and, and you know, training for employees and, uh, and trying to promote DEI in their own practices. Um, these are all the kinds of things that, that uh, companies are facing and pressure from uh, investors or, or even employees or or others that are you know trying to get these companies to adopt certain uh, policies and and positions. Yeah, it's interesting. Even a friend of mine recently who owns a a tech company was showing me a contract where, you know, hidden in this contract, they were trying to say that ten percent of all income had to be 
use towards some type of a, a DEI program in order to be compliant. So, I mean, what does this really mean for the average person? What is the danger really to our our businesses, our free market, and really just our day-to-day life with this, the push for this? No, oh, that's a great question. And, and it's really important for people to understand. I, I compare it to uh, or the analogy I use is is in the legal system. You know, our legal system, you have Lady Justice who wears a blindfold. And why is she wearing a blindfold? Because justice is supposed to be, uh, or the decisions in our, our legal system are supposed to be based on the law and the law alone. That's how you get to justice. As soon as you remove the blindfold uh, and Lady Justice starts looking around and uh, you can identify things like empathy or introduce, you know, who is the oppressor and who is oppressed, suddenly you have corrupted the legal system. On, uh, in our economic system, the analogy is that businesses are to make uh, decisions based on economic factors, uh, things that are financially material, and those factors alone. As soon as you introduce non-economic uh, uh, factors, things that, that don't play into uh, the business's uh, outcomes, financial outcomes, you have corrupted the economic system. And ESG is it does that. It it, it uh, introduces things that are not, uh, you know, economically material, uh, and really tries to push an agenda. And so that's why it's it's so dangerous. It, it looks like it fits within our economic system, but it actually will ultimately replace our economic system. And and that's why it's so dangerous. Yeah. Thanks for shining a light on that. And with this inflationary period that we've all I think have felt in our bank accounts. Do you see any correlation with inflation and this push for ESG? Well, you know, certainly there is an attack on fossil fuels. Um, uh, we've seen sort of this top-down, you know, this climate narrative that says, okay, we have to uh, move away from fossil fuels um, and and stop, you know, driving. Uh, combustion engine cars uh, and, you know, start uh, uh, importing oil and gas from foreign countries because we're going to shut down our own oil and gas production. You know, all of these things are are based on this uh, climate crisis narrative. And uh, unfortunately, when you convince enough institutional investors that fossil fuel investments are, um, are a negative, then you start seeing distortions in the marketplace. And that's that's one of the things that I identified was a lack of investment among institutional investors that have traditionally p- supplied important capital to uh, important fossil fuel projects um, that is no longer being supplied to the marketplace. So, for example, back in 2015, uh, institutional investors uh, supplied about $50 billion uh, to oil and gas private partnerships. In 2020, it was down to 25 billion, I believe. In 2021, that number fell to 3 billion. Wow. Uh, And that does not happen unless there is a concerted effort to cut off capital to the fossil fuel industry. And so when you cut off capital to the fossil fuel industry, you're destroying the supply. And when you destroy the supply, you end up pushing prices up. Uh, I, I think part of that dynamic is playing out uh, in the marketplace. And, and of course, energy prices uh, were some of the first um, prices to spike 
uh, as we've all been experiencing inflation for the last two and a half or so years. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I find myself, I'm always trying to read between the lines of like, okay, why, what's the ultimate goal? Why are they pushing this? I mean, what what do you think is really the ultimate goal behind this push for ESG? Well, you know, the whole climate narrative, that, that's really the engine that drives ESG. This climate crisis narrative that that is, is really kind of putting a lot of the uh, power or um, energy behind the ESG effort. And so the climate crisis narrative is really quite interesting because if you if you look at what uh, proponents of that have said, it's actually not about the climate. In fact, AOC's chief of staff back in 2019 said the Green New Deal wasn't originally about climate. It was about how do you change the economic system. Uh, in 2018, the UN commissioned a study, and and there was a headline that came out of that was that was uh, uh, incredible. It says we cannot fight climate change with capitalism. Um, the head of the UN's IPCC, the uh, the basically their climate um, body uh, that looks at climate science, uh, back in 2015, Christiana Figueres, she was the head of that that organization. And this was the same year of the Paris Climate Accord. Earlier that year, she said, this is the first time in the history of the world that we've intentionally tried to change the economic system that's been in place uh, in the world over the last 150 years. So really, the the whole goal is to replace our free enterprise system, our, our uh, you know, um, basically our economic system that has led to the most uh, prosperity, uh, the greatest outcomes, um, you know, that, that has lifted so many people out of poverty. It's led to more innovation than any other economic system. Uh, they're really trying to replace the, the economic system. Um, and that should concern all of us. Yeah. I mean, that's very, very concerning to me. And you look at the United Nations and Agenda 2030 and the sustainable goals. Even here at our own Utah Tech University, the provost, you know, was pushing to the professors that we need to implement the, um, you know, goals in the classroom of the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. And we need to not only have that here at the university, but we need to push this out to the community. Mm. What are your thoughts on that and the United Nations Agenda 2030? Well, uh, if you think about, um, you know, how those are, are set up, essentially the, the um, you know, sustainable development goals, it's really um, this top-down uh, structure. Um, and and one, of the, one of the earliest documents that actually identified or t- talked about ESG, in fact, it is the earliest um, the time that that has appeared in writing, those words, environmental social governance. It was a UN document back in 2004 that said, only if all actors contribute to the integration of ESG can significant, uh, or issues in investment decisions can significant improvements in this field be achieved. So clearly it's an agenda-driven strategy and 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 it, it's top-down. So it's basically saying, here's what we have to do uh, to save the world in all of these different uh, areas, you know, this, this the um, 17 or whatever it is, uh, uh, this is what we have to do. But what happens, uh, for example, when 
goals collide. So goal number two is zero hunger uh, versus goal number 13, climate action, you know, the climate crisis. Um, well, we see what's happening over in Europe with the attack on agriculture. Um, the Netherlands, you know, they're trying to shut down 3,000 farms uh, to meet their climate goals. Well, the Netherlands happens to be the second largest exporter of agricultural goods in the world, second only to the United States. And so if you're talking about uh, ending world hunger, why are you trying to shut down all these farms? So uh, clearly, you know, this is very difficult to to uh, pull off uh, with any uh, degree of success, uh, this top-down centralized control type of mechanism that is the sustainable development goals. Uh, the other problem is, is that you know when you when you move to this outcomes-based approach, where we say, okay, we've got to end world hunger and and we've got to address climate change and all these things, um, that this opens up the door to authoritarianism because the only way that you can achieve those goals is by authority, by pushing, uh, you know, forcing people essentially uh, to to change their behavior or stop eating meat, for example. Um, and, and, you know, destroying farms because there's too much uh, carbon emissions or whatever it is, um, you can see what this leads to just by the actions that are happening in the world today. Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And that leads me to something that I keep hearing buzzing around the uh, carbon credit score. Is, is there any validity to that? Do you think, you know, this carbon credit system, will this ever be a reality, you know, that will actually be walking around having to to track our carbon footprint and be allotted, you know, so many allotments for our, our carbon credits? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, it, 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 it sounds crazy, um, uh, but it, it, there is such a push on the climate narrative and, and this existential threat that we face that unless we do all of these sort of extreme things, we're all going to die. That's what concerns me. You know, James Madison said, crisis is the rallying cry of the tyrant. And and when we hear crisis narratives, um, it, it is, and it's tied to, you know, these solutions that we all have to adopt or we're going to die, that is a recipe for tyranny. And we should recognize it and we should question the, the solutions that are being offered to us and that we're told that we have to uh, enforce. And so, um, you know, the climate or, or carbon emissions uh, tracking, that's certainly a thing that that um, some people are uh, uh, adopting themselves just voluntarily, you know, trying to track their carbon footprint. Um, but the concern is, is, is the, you know, will, will we have governments that say, well, we have to do this or we're all going to die um, and because it's uh, a life or death, um, you know, the framing is life or death, uh, people will uh, potentially try to force other people to behave. I mean, we saw what happened with COVID. That was another life or death um, narrative that said, if you don't do X, then we're all going to die. And those people who are refusing to do it should die. And right? I mean, absolutely we've seen this dynamic before um, and, and it's very dangerous. Absolutely. Yeah. And government should never have that much power. I think if we learned anything through COVID is how quickly 
people will give up their freedoms under the guise of safety. So I hope that was a, a learning experience for everyone who jumped on that bandwagon so quickly. Now, one thing that I respect a lot about you is not only are you very educated in this, shining a light on this, but you are also taking measures to help protect at least the state of Utah um, from this. So touch on that. You know, what can we be doing to make it so ESG is less powerful and to really safeguard ourselves and our state? Uh, that's a really great question. And and people need to understand that they're that they have power in the marketplace. I think a lot of people um, have have uh, sort of forgotten about the importance of our economic system and our our individual liberties when it comes to our economic system. You know, it's it's uh, analogous to our constitutional form of government that puts us at the center. Uh, we as consumers are at the center of our economic system. We have the freedom to spend our money how we how we want to, earn our money how we want to, um, and, and it's those freedoms that that we should be exercising uh, uh, and, and be carefully exercising. We've seen companies like um, Bud Bud Light and Target and Disney um, that have adopted policies that uh, that are frankly offensive in a lot of a lot of cases, um, trying to push agendas onto the marketplace. Uh, and and consumers have the right to uh, spend their money how they want to, and, and it has extracted a price, and a very important price, on those companies and, and, and sent a signal to them saying, we don't want you to politicize your business. And I encourage all uh, consumers, all of us, to make our voices heard in the marketplace. If we don't like what a company is doing, we need to let them know why we don't like uh, what they're doing and take our business elsewhere. But we also need to let them know why, why we don't like what they're doing. We also uh, should let companies know that are not politicizing their business. Let them know that you appreciate that they're not politicizing their business. There's so many companies that are, that are adopting things, thinking that the marketplace you know, is is going to reward them, you know, by saying, oh, look at, look at us, we are, um, you know, only hiring this kind of dem demographic, or, uh, you know, we're, we're catering to this kind of uh, person, whatever it is. And, and those kinds of um, politicized activities in business are detrimental to all of us. And we should be telling businesses to focus on business, that they should be focusing on economic outcomes, not political outcomes. Uh, and we should be spending our money accordingly. That is one of the best ways to change uh, what's going on. And we've certainly seen that over the last year or two uh, with with people voicing their uh, uh, displeasure with their money. Absolutely. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, put your money where your mouth is, right? I mean, back to COVID, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of us didn't appreciate a mask mandate. And so I personally, I chose not to shop at any business that was forcing it. And, you know, I think that's the way it should have been. So many people were complaining about it, but yet they were still going and spending their money at the business who were forcing them to wear it. And I think this is a similar concept. And that actually leads me into one of the other questions I had regarding COVID and and really, I would just love to hear about just the state um, of Utah in general, of how we are financially, 
our economic health, our financial health. But one rumor that I've heard and I've not actually verified, did Utah actually receive more COVID funds, federal funds from COVID than any other state? Do you know if that's accurate? Uh, I don't know. I'd be surprised if that were the case, just based on the size of other uh, economies and other states. But um, I, I would guess that we were not the top, uh, but I don't know for sure. Thankfully, uh, that money did not come through my office and I didn't have to deal with it. So, Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I just was curious because that's something that I've heard, you know, quite a few times. So I thought, I wonder if there's actually some validity to that and you know, just the concerns of even receiving federal grants and what kind of strings are attached. So that's not something that you're really working directly with? No. Okay. Awesome. So how about, I want to get your thoughts also on um, these natural asset companies that I feel like we keep hearing about recently and what kind of effects does that have on the public? Yeah, so um, natural asset companies, these were um, a, a proposal that the New York Stock Exchange um, basically took up. It was uh, originally proposed by, uh, let's see, Intrinsic Exchange Group. Intrinsic Exchange Group was the organization that came up with these natural asset companies. They partnered with New York Stock Exchange. Uh, the New York Stock Exchange took a minority interest in that business and they recognized that they had to have a rule from the SEC to allow them to list this kind of company on on the New York Stock Exchange. And so they had to they they went to the uh, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, that is the regulator over the markets. And the New York Stock Exchange asked the SEC for a rule that allowed them to list this company. And the reason they had to ask for this rule is because the purpose of a natural asset company wasn't to conduct economic activity, but to manage ecological services. And ecological services you can think of as mother nature or processes that are natural processes that happen. Um, you might think of them as public goods, clean air, for example. That's something that all of us benefit from, all of us need, um, but we don't pay for. And, and so it's a public good or, or a positive externality. And, and so a natural asset company was, was um, proposed uh, by the New York Stock Exchange. They would have um, been able to raise capital from investors around the world, um, including from China and Saudi Arabia, Russia, uh, and even U.S. investors and other investors around the world, um, list the company on the New York Stock Exchange, and then use that money to uh, acquire management rights of land. They didn't need to uh, purchase land, they could just uh, acquire the management rights over land. So they could manage public land and private land. And the reason that they would do that is to manage it for sustainable activities, and only sustainable activities would be allowed. And, and so what is a sustainable activity? Well, it's, it, it certainly does not include extractive activity. So anything that is uh, really what we might think of as generating economic return today, so things like mineral extraction, oil ex uh, extraction, grazing, things of that nature, that would, be, that would not be allowed on a natural asset company because the only activity that would be allowed would be a sustainable activity. And, and so the whole goal of a natural asset company is to maximize the mother nature processes 
um, and to value those processes uh, and and uh, and essentially trade it trade those uh, companies based on on uh, that that natural valuation evaluation of of natural processes that that frankly we don't have a price on those natural processes because they're not based on economic activity and so to put a price on it is really an arbitrary exercise uh, you're you're pulling a, a a figure out of thin air uh, and saying well this is what it's worth and so. Um, very problematic, but w- one of the biggest problems is that you're essentially using that natural asset, um, the the money that that company would raise, going around and securing management rights to land, and then shutting down the productive uh, economic activity that's happening on that land, all in the name of again climate change, the climate crisis, and biodiversity loss, um, and, and so that that's really kind of the driving force. Uh, behind the natural asset company. Now, thankfully, uh, because of pressure that would, what was exerted um, across the marketplace, the New York Stock Exchange pulled the rule from the Securities and Exchange Commission so that it did not allow the Securities and Exchange Commission the chance to allow a natural asset company because the New York Stock Exchange went in and said, okay, we're, we're pulling the rule um, because uh, we think that there are some uh, negatives that, that may happen. Uh, as a result of this. Wow. Yeah, that is terrifying if that were to go through. So at this point, then you're saying they've pulled that back. But, you know, potentially, I guess we could see something like that in the future, do you think? Yes, uh, no no question. In fact, the the White House um, published a paper in January of 2023. uh, The the um, the other acronym, natural capital accounts, very similar to natural asset companies, natural capital accounts. Uh, these are uh, basically tr- the the effort is to bring together the economic accounting and environmental accounting and place it on the balance sheet of of the nation or of a corporation. And so the environmental accounting is the same. Uh, concept as what was contemplated with a natural asset company. Um, but in this case, it would put the, the value on the nation's balance sheet of those natural processes. And as they say in, in that paper, what gets measured gets managed. And so if we're measuring the natural processes over time, then again, the federal government uh, could come in and, and try to manage uh, the natural processes that's happening on um, public uh, land and and potentially uh, private land, uh, the conservation easements uh, uh, land that, that's private. Um, and, and so that effort is still ongoing today uh, to, to create va- a valuation of natural processes. Uh, and it's really, um, it's really quite uh, concerning um, on a number of different levels, uh, because once you take a positive externality or a public good, you assign a value to it. Um, you're opening up the door to ownership and trading of of those processes and potentially charging people for them, or uh, you know, um, uh, giving them an invoice for destroying you know natural processes or whatever. Um, it it really opens a Pandora's box, um, and it's and it's very uh, different from the economic system that we have that's very clean uh, and based on economic activity. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, it really just sounds insane. A way to, I guess, monetize our God-given resources. I mean, even air. I don't I don't know exactly how they monetize that, but essentially it sounds like a way to insert more dominance and control. And I think you may have answered one of my questions because one of my questions was, how would they do that with privately owned land? But it sounds like it would likely be through these conservation easements. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah. And, and there's also there's also an effort to put more land under um, protection. So um, I think the Fish and Wildlife is working on a, a large, I think it's 5.8 million acres or 5.3, 5.8 something uh, million acres in Montana. Uh, and it's the Missouri Headwaters area, um, southwest Montana, I believe. Um, and that includes private land uh, within that sort of designated area that they're trying to create. Um, but they're offering conservation easements to people with private land in, in that area. You know, if you have la- private land in, in a designated area, it's, it's uh, you know, it's not that they'll come in and take your land. It's, it's more a matter of um, not keeping up with, with road maintenance and, you know, other things to um, basically make it difficult to uh, maintain your your private land. So um, there's a lot of trouble, troubling issues that are being raised uh, with regard to land. And that's one of the, the key um, freedoms that we've had in this country is, is private land ownership. Absolutely. Yeah. Life, liberty, property. I mean, it doesn't get more American values, fundamental God-given rights than that. And I think that's interesting about the conservation easements because that's actually something even here at a city level that I've seen pushed and encouraged is, you know, people putting their land in a conservation easement and there's no downside. It's going to, you know, always preserve the land. But it sounds like you essentially are potentially relinquishing some of that control of your land that could potentially be affected by all of this then is that accurate yes absolutely you're, you're um, when you put land into a conservation easement there is a nexus um, to the federal government that even as a third party they have uh, a right to um, enforce the easement if the uh, basically, the land trust that 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 is managing the easement or enforcing it, if they are not able to uh, enforce it, then then the federal government has um, the right to step in and and make sure that that easement is being enforced. Um, you know, there are certain organizations that do easements better than others, um, but the the real problem with easements is the perpetual nature. So. Um, you can enter into a conservation easement for a shorter period of time, but when you do it in perpetuity, that's where the problem really lies. Uh, and you think about our most important uh, societal relationship, marriage. Um, we all, you know, enter marriage thinking that that's going to last uh, forever and, and we're all going to be happy and, and you know, everything's going to work out. And then life happens, um, even with that most important uh, relationship. Each party has an out um, because things change. Uh, with the con- conservation easement, you're 
you are permanently changing what land is. And so in, in a conservation easement transaction, uh, there's a landowner and the land itself. And land is a resource that is a limited resource. And it is, um, you know, even under multiple use with federal land, the whole point of multiple use of federal land is for societal benefit. Um, when you put a land into conservation easement, you are permanently changing that resource and and potentially harming uh, society long term. You know, people don't think about the second or third or fourth generation um, and and how that land changes. Uh, the, the the argument is, well, I'm the landowner; I can choose for myself. Uh, you know what I do with my land. The problem is, is that uh, and, well, and they say that if you sell to a developer, you've permanently changed the land. You've permanently made a decision for that land. But the reality is, is even in a development, 30, 40, 50, whatever, how many years later, that land can be changed back to something else. It's still land that that can be uh, uh, turned into something the highest and best use for society. Right. Conservation easement changes that entirely. Um, and, and so society may end up, you know, 50, 100 years down down the line with land that really isn't of much value um, because it can't be, there are certain things that can't be done, you know, with that land. And so, um, and so the question is, should we, should we be putting land in perpetuity in a conservation easement. You know, if, if somebody wants to preserve land, let's do it at 15-year increments and say, okay, after 15 years, you know, maybe the next person in line, maybe it's a, a son or a daughter, uh, says, yeah, you know, yeah, this is the right thing. I want to continue uh, with this this conservation easement. And so they put another 15 years on. You know, as long as you're uh, maintaining that the optionality uh, because that has a, a, an impact on society, what happens with, with a limited resource like land that, that uh, you know, once it's, once it's turned into something or, or you know, the freedom to, to uh, turn it into something is taken away, that, in, that has serious impacts on society. Yeah, that's such a great perspective for people to be considering. And, you know, with just a couple minutes left here, we've hit on a lot of important topics and, you know, some of it may even be over some people's head about, you know, how does this actually affect me or what can I do? So maybe just to wrap up, I mean, what are some important things, takeaways that Utah residents, I mean, really any American citizen needs to know about these important topics? What does it actually mean for our day-to-day lives? And, you know, we touched on basically putting our money where our mouth is as far as, you know, how to spend our money and being conscientious of those things. But what else can we also be doing as individuals to protect ourselves from this? Yeah, I think it's really important for people to understand the basics of our economic system, of our political system, um, to recognize uh, the that our system is comprised of a lot of different um, um, areas uh, and and it, it's important to have segregation where we've spread power uh, across kind of society and and we need to recognize that it's 
those uh, different institutions that play different roles. It's the dispersion of power that is so important. Um, we do. We should be very concerned about the consolidation of power uh, across society, and 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 we should be concerned about uh, you know the compliance, the, the compliance narrative, and forcing people to comply. Uh, this is so different than than the America that I grew up in, where where you know independent thinking was Absolutely. rewarded. And, Yes, and, individual uh, rights. That's what I'm hearing. Thank you so Thanks much, Marlo. For being a part of the Michelle Tanner podcast. Please like, follow, subscribe, and share. And always remember to keep exposing truth. But I won't back down. No, I won't back down. This has been a production from a podcast studio.